You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank MHZ Choice for its continued support of SpyCast. You'll hear more about this great service later, but first, let's meet our guests. We're joined today by Tom Nichols, who's a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and at the Harvard Extension School. He's written widely on international relations, Russian affairs, and nuclear weapons. In addition to his academic post, he has been a fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Carnegie Council on Ethics and International Relations, and the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. In Washington, he served as personal staff for defense and security affairs in the United States Senate to the late Senator John Heinz of Pennsylvania. He's also a five-time undefeated Jeopardy! champion, which I am very envious of. His books include The Sacred Cause, No Use, Nuclear Weapons in the U.S. National Security, Eve of Destruction, The Coming Age of Preventative War, and The Russian Presidency. His newest book is The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks for having me. So it, it's hard not to go into reading this book, just kind of looking at the cover, and perceive it as anything other than a curmudgeonly non-millennial academic like me, yelling at clouds and complaining about kids these days. Uh, I assure you out in listener world, it is not that totally, certainly. Um, and I knew very quickly I would like this book. Uh, it had a lot to do with the fact that quotes in two chapters were from the dude from the Big Lebowski, and so I married an axe murder. And, and, <laughs> and, immediately and the said, spy who came in from the cold. And the, the spy who came in from the cold. So immediately I was like, okay, I'm going to dig this. Um, let, me, let me just ask the basic straightforward question, because I try to do that when, when I have authors here, um, is what was the impetus for this book? And, and, and as you answer that, I want to kind of th- tell you a little bit about the audience that we have. A lot of them are grad students, early career people. They're historians or political scientists, writing dissertations, thinking about writing books. So that's why I want to ask that sure. question so people can think about that themselves. Sure. Um, well, interestingly enough, there was a bit of a curmudgeonly origin to the book uh, and one that actually uh, has a lot to do with the mission of the Spy Museum. Uh, it wasn't about the election. I can just start by saying you know, people said, well, did you write this because of the election or politics or uh, the news? It really wasn't that. Uh, it was about three or four years ago, and it's when the Edward Snowden business first broke, interestingly enough. And I was trying to explain to people something that is now obvious but then seemed less obvious. I said, look, I'm a Russian expert. I speak Russian. I've dealt with the Russians for years. Trust me, there is a Russian hand behind this. Uh, I I think most of the people in the Russia business always uh, knew 
that WikiLeaks and the Russian intelligence services were joined at the hip, that mm -hmm. somehow, you know, Snowden, the, the, the whole narrative of, well, this was just an idealistic young guy who did a, you know, did a brave thing and then ran, ran to Russia was never true. Well, whether you accept that or not, um, what was interesting about it, and as an expert, and what made me think about expertise, was that people who really had no background in this were saying things to me on social media and in person. They were saying things like, well, Tom, let me explain Russia to you. <laughs> I don't think you understand this, Professor Nichols. I think you need to understand how Russia is. And I think you need to understand how the National Security Agency works. You know, and I'm sitting there kind of rubbing my forehead tiredly saying, wow, you know, that's really amazing. So one night, uh, a little peek into the creative process here, right? One night I sat down and I, I used to have a blog. And as we talk more, I'll explain why I got rid of a blog, because I think blogs are part of the problem right. now. But I used to have a blog and I said, well, just for therapy, I'm going to sit down and kind of bang out uh, 3,000 words, because of course, on a blog, nobody edits you and you can write forever about why are people listening to experts? Because this was really just kind of the cherry on, on the Sunday mm -hmm. of years of people saying, Tom, uh, you know, uh, let me explain nuclear weapons to you yeah. uh, kind of stuff. Um, and I said, you know, this is, it's okay to question experts. Everybody should question experts. That's our job. Our client is society. Mm -hmm. We should explain ourselves to you. We should have to answer your questions. But, but we had entered this new world where people were stepping forward and saying, I know your subject better than you do. Um, even if I can't find it on a map, I'm right. going to explain it to you. And so I wrote this whole business that had been spurred by the Snowden incident about, you know, how things really work in the real world. Well, I, I wrote it. I brought my blood pressure back down. I put it out there. People started talking about it on the Internet. Well, maybe a month or two later, um, the folks at The Federalist were just starting up their new magazine, uh, a kind of conservative mm -hmm. magazine of culture and ideas. And their editor contacts me and he says, hey, can we have that? Can we use that? And I said, well, if you think anybody really wants right. to read, you know, the old man shaking his fist <laughs> at clouds uh, piece, okay, you can have it. And uh, it went viral. Uh, it was the most read piece on their site that year. Wow. Uh, by the end of about a year or so, over a million people, not hits, but individual readers, had read it around the world. I started getting mail uh, from, you know, scientists and doctors and diplomats and business people from all over the world. And I said, geez, I guess I had an error. But again, I kind of didn't think about it anymore. Right. And uh, then Oxford University Press contacted me and said, well, you know, this really does seem like a book. And even at that moment, I said, do you think so? Um, and so I sat down and kind of sketched out what I, I and I think it was a good exercise to say what began as kind of a complaint about, you know, you kids get off my lawn and listen to me when I'm talking about Russia uh, turned into I really need to defend this and to think it through and flesh it out at greater length. And I think that one of the interesting things about this book is is. Kind of figuring out what an expert is. I mean, and that, yes. that, there, there's a lot of competing definitions of whether, you know, I read a lot on Google that makes me an expert right. to I visited there once, so I know all about <laughs> it, to somebody who's spent not only years in school, but years in public life and, right. and expertise. And, and I, I love this story about the Columbia professor, Marshall Shulman, and the idea that it's, it is, it's a bit like the pornography, like, you know, when you exactly. see it. Exactly. And, and I see that a lot. Uh, Normally, I saw that when I was writing my dissertation, when I first hit 
the archives. I had no idea what I was looking for. I read stuff, didn't understand it, but a couple years in, it just I just looked at a document and I got that it mattered. And that, that built-up understanding, the built-up experience really led to that. But I think this is an important argument for the intelligence community overall, this concept that I've run an analyst to, like, why are you good at your job? And they say, see these two maps? I can just look at these and tell you 20 things about them. And it's not because I'm magic that way. And this idea that IC analysts or, or someone who works at CIA is a very successful analyst is born that way somehow. This years and years of training. It's not just school. There, there's, there's something that makes an expert an expert. And it doesn't have to be credentials, mm-hmm. although I think credentials are an important first step. Um, what we're really talking about, we'll, we should tell that Shulman story, mm-hmm. um, but what we're really talking about is experience. And you can take it to any field. I mean, a, an electrician. Uh, I remember when I was getting my house rewired, and to me, that's all. This is all magic, you know. <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke once said, "You know, high enough technology is indistinguishable from magic." Well, for me, wiring my house, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, is magic. And he just opens this box in my basement. And he says, "Oh yeah," and I went, well, "You know what?" And he said, "What?" And he because he had seen enough of these um, people who inspect fruit can look at two peaches or, or two groups of cherries and say, okay, this one passes, this one doesn't, because I've been doing this long enough. The Marshall Shulman story was interesting because it was, as I say in the book, it, it, it almost made me rethink my life choices. Uh, Marshall Shulman was the director of the Soviet Institute at Columbia. And of course, one of the things that um, Soviet experts do is we read the Soviet and Russian press all day long. And, and for the for the kids these days, the Soviet Union was a country that was existed a <laughs> until 1991. Sorry. Well, the, the former Russian Federation. It's like you know the Beatles, Paul McCartney's right. old band. <laughs> um, but uh, you know we, it was a closed society, and so the way closed societies communicate is with very careful. Um, placement of their own press uh, because they can't just say things openly. And we asked Shulman, well, how do you, you know, you sit here with these papers all day. How do you figure out what's going on in the Soviet Union? What's the process? And he said, I can't really explain it. He said, he literally said, I read Pravda until my nose twitches. And I I thought that was just the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. (laughs) I said, oh man, I have chosen poorly. Um, you know, that all of this magic about studying the Soviet press turned out to be some old guy. And he used to wear a um, the, one of those accountant visors, you know, the green <laughs> visor. Know he, used to, he used to read while wearing one of those green visors. And I said, this eccentric old man is taking my money and my life is ruined. Um, but damn if he wasn't right that um, I had my I, – I did my early career with Soviet military politics. So I used to read their – uh, military newspaper, Red Star. I had my own subscription. used to arrive every day, and I had piles of them in my office. And damned if he wasn't right that after reading it enough, you would, you'd come across something and you'd stop and say, wait, this isn't right. right. Something's odd here. Um, sort of like w- with you, historical research. You go into an archive. I think one of the things that's really tragic about the Internet age is that students often don't have to go into an archive. Yeah. They just pull it up. And I, I found so many times. I did some work here at Library of Congress on a book I was doing where I went into the um, General Volkogonov's papers. And the thing I was looking for was interesting, but it wasn't as interesting as the thing that was right next to it in the box that I right. pulled. 
it's also interesting to see what's not there. Right. And the, the missing, you don't get that on the internet. You just get the information that's there, but you don't see what's missing. You don't see what's been pulled. Right. I mean, in my field, you don't, oh, there's a lot of classification issues. So, you know, you have this great folder that you think you found and you open it and all of a sudden you're like, wait, all this is, decla- all this is classified. Why right. can't I get this stuff? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think, you know, part of the whole defining an expert, that was a really hard part of the book. Because I had always taken it for granted. It was like asking me, you know, what's a good Christian? Yeah. Or, you know, what's a, what's a good cop? Um, and I had to sit down and think about it. Because part, one of the arguments people had with me about the piece and that still have with me about the book is they think that all I'm doing is pushing credentials. Well, you, you and I both, Vince and I, were sitting here and we both have PhDs. We're experts. Not really. Right. Um, that doesn't necessarily, certainly not on everything. Um, and so I, I came up with a, a set of criteria that I talk about in the book, including credentials, experience, peer review, yep. which is really important, um, the affirmation of other professionals and experts who will a- affirm that you're actually good at what you do by testing your product, your mm-hmm. output, um, and talent and longevity in the field. Well, I thought one of the interesting points that you make is that in willing to admit the wrong. Mm. is kind of one of the kind of key components of an expert. I don't know what that's take. like because I yeah. have never been wrong, but I... <laughs> <laughs> Other people apparently are able to do that. Uh, but I, and I think that, you know, especially in the sciences, and, you know, history is not a science, but the liberal arts work the same way is especially history because history, especially intelligence history, but stuff mm. gets declassified all the time, is the willingness to say, ooh, this new information changes things. And science has to do that every day. Uh, and that, that to you me... Know that, you know, yeah. Well, with the end of the Cold War, especially, the whole field of international relations, and I think this is a terrible failure in the field of international relations, once all this Soviet stuff became declassified, we were able to engage in the biggest kind of empirical test of international relations theories and of Sovietology mm-hmm. and of, you know, um, comparative politics and their studies... Uh, and we just weren't interested in doing it, I think, because we did turn out to be wrong about a lot of things. Remember, most people in the international relations field said, you know, the Cold War couldn't possibly end that way. Um, in my own case, and I talk about it in the book, I mean, I I got a lot of things right. Um, but, boy, when I got one wrong, it was it was way wrong. I wasn't um, going to bring that that's up. That's okay. You did it on your own. You know, when Vladimir Putin um, came to power, I said, well... I, I kind of don't like this. Um, I don't like the way it was done. But on the other hand, he had a pretty sterling background with Sobchak, uh, with the mayor of Lenin, what became St. Petersburg again. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, not perfect, but, uh, you know, have to kind of somebody has to put the Russian Federation together after Yeltsin kind of stumbled his way mm-hmm. through the 90s. And I said, this could work out. He, he said the right things. He had people in his foreign policy apparatus who were mostly what we called the back then Atlanticists, people that thought of kind of the Atlantic right. as a single space, uh, including the United States. Um, and to this day, the theory that we're still arguing about um, was, was Putin bad from the beginning and people like me were wrong? Or did Putin somehow change along the way and people like me weren't quite so wrong, but we didn't see it in time to see how he was going to change? And that's a perfectly legitimate thing to to argue about. And I think, you know, listeners, many of your listeners under, who know particularly, you know, kind of things like in- intelligence analysis and archival research, um, you're taking your best guess on the available evidence. And I think one thing that I'll just wrap this comment up with is 
One of the things I find disturbing about the way people relate to experts is that they look for cases of expert failure to invalidate entire fields of expert endeavor. Um, Now, by the time this airs, we'll have a much clearer um, result on Brexit, excuse me, on the British elections. Right. Uh, One of the things I notice no one's talking about is that this time the pollsters were right on the nose. Now, if the pollsters had been wrong, all we would have heard about is political polling is nonsense, political experts don't know squat, everybody's, you know, people take the Homer Simpson approach, everybody's stupid but me. Um, But in fact, you know, what we're finding, and I think we're going to find over the next few days, is political pollsters hit this one really close to the bullseye. Well, I think you see that in the intelligence world also, when, when there's massive intelligence failure. Yes. All of a sudden, the analysts don't know what they're doing, right. they're idiots. I mean, interesting, like the Iraqi WMD is still somewhat a fresh wound for many people. And, and in some cases, people would rather believe it was a sinister plot by that the Bush administration, because at least that means the CIA wasn't wrong. Right, right. And, and know, that incompetence, yeah. is, uh, that a plot is less scary than incompetence. Yeah. Um, one of my, I, it wasn't a movie I liked very much, but there was a great scene in it, Kingsman, The mm-hmm. Secret Service, uh, which I certainly don't recommend if you have children. Yes. Um, <laughs> it is rated R for a reason, I yes, would imagine. Yes, for so, um, yeah. a pretty high R <laughs> if you think about it. Um, but there's a great scene in it where uh, the kid is talking to the master spy. He's talking to um, Clive, um, Clive uh, Owen, not Clive Owen. Uh, Colin. Co- uh, Colin, right. Suave yeah. British actor, yeah, yeah. whoever, right. Yeah. So, and there, his his office is covered with uh, newspaper headlines, with uh, front pages of the newspaper. And they're all totally boring. You know, uh, Manchester wins mm-hmm. match, Margaret Thatcher visits India, uh, you know, big storm in London. And the kid says, this is really boring. You know, these all of these headlines, these you, you've got them all up here like trophies. What's the deal? And he says, Exactly. Those are all days that something didn't happen, that something could have happened, that we foiled. Right. And, of course, nobody has a wall like that. But whoever wrote that one scene in the movie totally got it about how intelligence and police work really work, is that the best days are when something awful could have happened and didn't, and the public will never know. I really equate it to, especially when I'm talking to people who just have no background, in national security intelligence, and I equate it to a sports analogy in my mind. It's an offensive line in football. Mm. No one ever notices the offensive line until they screw up. Right. And if you go a whole game and never hear an announcer mention an offensive lineman, it means they played an amazing game because they're just they're not supposed to be there. In many ways, the intelligence community is not supposed to be talked about because they're secret. And, right. of course, when they are, the only time the public is engaging with the intelligence community, at least until recently, was, well, they screwed up with 9-11 or yes. WMD or something else. Let, let, let's, we'll get back to this to a degree because I want to talk a little bit more about it later, but let's get to kind of, kind of the premise of this book. And it's pretty stark. People, Americans in the collective generic sense, have been ignorant for some time now. Um, and you even have the great quote from Isaac Asimov uh, in the beginning of the intro going, you know, he died in 92 or something That's like that. The quotes so, from 1980. Yeah, so it goes back a bit. But what you mentioned in the book, and I think is totally true in this case, is they revel in it now. I, yes. I think there's a collective celebration, a hostility to knowledge that perhaps has never been around before. I think it's because people find it empowering. And that happens when the world starts moving faster than people are comfortable with. 
And that's been happening um, for a while. I mean, the world, um, you know, always interesting if you have an older relative. My pe- my dad passed away a few years ago at 94 years old. And um, he was pretty comfortable with the modern world. He, he learned how to use a computer and... Um, you know, managed to handle the remote on his TV better than, you know, most people do. Uh, nonetheless, you know, my dad would sit back and say, when I was a boy, airplanes were, if you saw an airplane in the sky, everybody ran out into the yard to point at it. Uh, now think about that, you know, living in a world where if something flew over your house, every kid in the neighborhood came running into the backyard. Now that when things get hard to keep up with, um, people feel out of control and they feel like things are moving too fast. And especially when it hurts them, when progress hurts, when you can't make the jump between the fact that you have two televisions and a Chinese computer and a Chinese made phone, um, and a, a car that's a Japanese German South American Canadian hybrid of some kind. Um, and you can't figure out why you're out of work and why your manufacturing jobs are disappearing. And so you say, you know, all of this was created by experts and they're hurting me. And so I am going to say that my my declaration of personal autonomy is I'm not going to listen to those guys anymore. And you become proud of it. Um, I think, and it's not just limited. I I, I don't want anybody to think that this is just, you know, out of work um, manufacturing folks in Indiana. It's the same reason that wealthy parents in San Francisco do it. I was about two weeks ago, I was just in San Francisco giving uh, a talk on the book. And, you know, I suddenly kind of realized that I was about to start talking about the anti-vaccine movement in the heart of the anti-vaccine movement. And I finally had to just say, I know you think you're educated people. I know you think you're, uh, you know, on top of the news and science, but you're doing something really stupid and you're doing it because it makes you feel good. Well, GMOs is the best. I mean, to me is one of the most prominent examples of this. I mean, there are brilliant, brilliant people that like, oh, Monsanto and GMO, like, I, okay, like there would be one billion less Indians today right. if it wasn't for genetically modified foods. But it, but it's a very empowering thing to go into the supermarket and say, now, wait a minute, I'm not just pulling anything off the shelf here. I'm going to be, you know, the yeah. in-charge consumer and I'm going to look for the no gluten or the non-GMO or the organically farmed um, and, you know, remarkably enough, I grew up in the 1960s, and we somehow managed to find, you know, fruit and vegetables to eat and didn't <laughs> die. Well, and I think that's where, as you talk about in the book, where conspiracy theories really come oh. into play. And, you know, I, we're, we don't escape that here at the Spy Museum, as you can imagine. And we see this all the time from the left and the right. And, you know, especially the last year that, you know, uh, heavily we're in D.C., so the Clinton group, you know, stole the the primaries and, of course, everything from that. And I have a general rule. I'll just throw that out there just to give you an idea. There are three things you can say to me that will end the conversation instantaneously whenever anyone comes up to me and wants to ask me questions or talk to me. One is you haven't read what I've read, which I probably <laughs> guarantee I have. Yep. Another is I know a guy who told me, which there's no way to have a foundational <laughs> argument based on that. And the final one, when I finally say, look, there are CIA documents that say this, well, that's just what they want you to say. Yes. And those three things combined are the instantaneous enders of any kind of logical conversation that can possibly have. And that's really this idea of this conspiracy theory. Like, you can't prove it's not true, so it must be true. 
I think that, well, first of all, I agree with you about the three conversation enders. The, the variant for me is, well, let me suggest to you, this is especially fun for me. So people say, well, I, let me suggest to you something you should read. Wow. Well, okay. Uh, I actually had someone uh, suggest some readings to me, and I said, you know, I've actually read that, and here's a, cha- here's a chapter of a book. And I purposely didn't tell him what book it was from, and he said, oh, I, I'm familiar with all that. And I said, really? Because I wrote it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the Spy Museum when it comes to, uh, let me just put in a plug yeah, for your organization here. Feel free. Uh, <laughs> is that when people come to a place like this and you actually get into the guts of how something like this is done, what you really find out is that, yes, it's clever, it's interesting, it's exciting. It's also in some ways mundane that it is people, um, it's interesting and it's fascinating, but it's not magic. Right. And that it's people very patiently doing very patient things that are not grand conspiracy theories. And in some ways that makes them more cool because conspiracy theories rely on a huge amount of logical leaps that are totally unsupportable. It requires one or two people in them to be capable of, uh, you know, magical powers. I mean, it really is nuts. And, and I think, uh, you know, when you I think that information and education is really the best way to get by that, except that the people who are most attached to conspiracy theories are not edu- interested right. in it, being educated about them. Yeah, I, mean, I think the cognitive dissonance of you can't fill the government's too inept to fill potholes in the roads. Yet right. they can have this wide conspiracy theory of the deep state. Planning George Bush that, is a moron, but yeah. he pulled off the greatest conspiracy in the history of mankind. And, 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 and then this happens not only after intelligence failure. I mean, Pearl Harbor and 9-11, obviously the ones that people point to. And FDR was trying to get us into the war and all the 9-11 nonsense, everything from, you know, Bush knew about it and, and supported it to jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams. Right. Um, but I, I look at the impact on the intelligence community and the way that conspiracy theories – widen this gulf between the relationship that they're normal everyday people like you were talking about. I mean, here in D.C., there are neighbors, there are friends, there are the people that we know. Here in this museum, there are people who work here and people who are talking to you right now. But at the same time, they're Americans. They're, they're people who are just as dedicated to uh, this country doing well as anybody else. And the conspiracy theory from the uneducated, it, it's it makes – not only the job harder, but it makes the relationship Without a doubt. more strained. You know, one of the one of the things about this book in general, and certainly on these issues about foreign policy and security, um, it's my job as an expert to tell you the truth, you the listener, you the fellow citizen or the neighbor, um, even when it pisses you off. And that, I think, has been a real problem in the collapse of the relationship between experts and citizens. Because a lot of my fellow experts, and I'm sure you've had this experience, you've known people have been through it, they're pulling back from public engagement because it's right. just too hard. That you know, Especially that conspiracy theory business um, where you say, well, let me explain this to you. And you give them a pretty you know, solid explanation based on the facts that they ought to know. And they say, so you're part of it. Right? right? And I've had people say, so, oh, you've – by the way, I, this is I, – I do teach at the Naval War College. This is where I should add. I don't speak for the right. Naval War College or the Navy or the DOD or anybody else. But people say, well, you work for a war college. So, of course, you're part of the cover-up on the WMDs. <laughs> uh, no, you know, I teach at a small educational institution in Rhode Island. <laughs> Believe me, I wasn't part of the cover-up on the WMDs. Um, and then you try to explain to people, hey, the WMD theory at the time with the in- evidence we had was actually a pretty good theory. Right. 
You know, you don't start from the assumption that somebody who acts like he has weapons of mass destruction doesn't have them. When his own generals think he has them. And when right. Right. Now, right. You know, uh, we've talked to Mark, Mark Lowenthal, who, you know, was the high up uh, analyst at the time. And he straight up says, if I had to do it again today. I'd reach the same conclusion. Reach the exact I would, same so would conclusions. I. Yeah. So would I. And I think uh, the check on this, this is another place where things go wrong with lay people talking to experts. They say, well, because you guys got it wrong. Therefore, the answer is not to get better at being experts or to find better information or to have other experts check your work. It's to appeal to people who know nothing. Right. Um, that the answer to expert failure is to elevate ignorance and non-experts. And that is where we're running into some very dangerous territory these days. Well, the non-experts are getting more and more bold. And you even talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect where yes. – uh, the dumber you are, the more confident that you're not dumb. <laughs> right. Uh, in, in, in any field. In yeah. any field. So it's, and it's not just knowledge. The Dunning-Kruger effect, uh, named for two social psychologists who, who, who came up with it, it's, it's in any aspect where people, the less competent you are at something, the more likely you are to think you are competent and even great at it. And the example I always use with people is that one guy you always go to uh, karaoke with who can't sing, and then he steps off the stage and says, I was awesome, right? Nailed it. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, you know, the, the, uh, the, the guy who says, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a great driver. They, and, of course, that's the guy we're all terrified to get in right. the car with. Um, well, and, it's just, you talk about this lack of metacognition, the, the ability to kind of step back and self-reflection is kind of an important part of this. That well, people it, just don't have. It leads into the problem that I talk about in the book that I think is at the root of all of this, which is narcissism. Yeah. Metacognition is not just an intellectual capability. It's the uh, f resilience of character to step back and to say, I really screwed that up. Well, that's where we go back to the idea of admitting that you're wrong. Because I think you know you talk about the backfire effect where people will double down on their, their stupidity instead of admitting that they had made a mistake. And... This isn't just for any – I mean, I've certainly done this maybe once or twice in my yeah, life. Maybe once or twice. Yeah, where you keep digging. You <laughs> yeah, keep digging yeah. down like, no, I'm going to find the right thing here somewhere. <laughs> but I think, you know, the, the, this in a general sense, the, the more likely uh, you are to say, ooh, you know, I kind of screwed this up. Let me get it right this time. I feel it um, a lot of times with my writing. As I've, as I've become a better writer, and I think I'm a pretty good writer – um, I've written a lot of books and uh, kind of, you know, mastered the art form, I think, and as well as most people can. Um, I mean, I'm not Stephen King, but uh, um, nonetheless, there are still moments where I kind of put something down. I go back and read it and I say, man, this is awful. <laughs> Holy cow. How, did the, how does this guy not know what a participle is? And, you know, and then I find myself going, oh, that's you. Um, I teach a writing course at, at uh, Harvard Extension, and I sometimes show my students what my editors send back to me to, to kind of get them used to, you know, I start the course and I say, listen, I'm going to hurt your feelings <laughs> to just accept that, that some point in this course, I'm going to say something and you're just going to feel terrible. But then I say, but that's what my editors do right. every day. And that's why we need them. That's a big part of expert behavior. I don't think anybody, I think every writer who thinks they don't need an editor is probably the one who needs an editor more than right. anybody else. I love working with that editors out there. <laughs> listen to me. I do love working with you. My editors will, t will uh, affirm this because they do make you better writers, but right. it's hard to do because you have to have a certain amount of character to say it's not personal. Uh, this is where I think people should take the Michael. We've been talking about movies. They need to take the Michael Corleone rule. 
It's business. It's, n- it's just yeah. business. It's not personal. We'll have more with Tom in a moment, but let me take a minute to tell you a little about MHZ Choice. MHZ Choice is a streaming service that features European mysteries, dramas, comedies, and spy shows streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. What's cool about this is these are shows that you've likely never seen before, and they have some amazing spy-related content. There's the Weigensee Saga, which is a drama about a Stasi family in 1980s East Berlin. What's really cool about this is it was filmed on location at the site of the actual Stasi headquarters in East Berlin, which is now the Stasi Museum. There's also Senk Batu, Undercover Agent, State Bureau of Investigation in Hamburg, his ability to analyze people and situations is put to good use as he works on a wide variety of cases ranging from industrial espionage and financial crimes to terror cells and political assassinations. And then there's the Hamilton Collection. This is four different series that are based on and inspired by the novels of a Swedish author that center around the exploits of fictional Swedish super spy Carl Hamilton. They also have some of the coolest non-spy TV from around the world, like the French cop thriller Spiral, which has been called Darker and More Twisted Than The Wire. It's a winner of the 2015 International Emmy for Best Drama Series. And coming in July, a chance to see it before anybody else does, is the Swedish political thriller Blue Eyes, the terrifying TV show that tracks the rise of the far right in Europe. The Guardian calls it as claustrophobic as Homeland and as tightly wound as The Wire. And there's more than a dash of House of Cards in its depiction of naked power grabs and backroom manipulations in the run-up to a general election. Might sound kind of familiar to some of you. There's new content added each week, so you'll always have something new to watch, all with English subtitles. And you'll get that plus the entire MHZ Choice Library, which includes over 2,500 hours of binge-worthy TV for only $7.99 a month. We can try MHZ Choice for free for 30 days, and after that you'll save 50% off your first month. So visit mhzchoice.com spycast and use the code spycast at checkout. That's mhzchoice.com slash spycast, and use the code spycast at checkout for a 30-day free trial and 50% off your first month after that. Let's talk about the internet. Uh, because Speaking you know, of conspiracy yes. theories and... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I grew up for the most part in the internet age. I mean, I was, I was 21 years old before I had an email address. I'll tell you a little bit about how old I am now, but... The internet has been the great equalizer in many respects, where it's you know brought certain nations kind of out of the dark ages. It's also allowed us to instantaneously look up when someone died or someone who was yeah. born or some random factoid. Um, but the problem in, in comparing the internet and bringing it into an intelligence perspective is going back to Roberta Wolstetter's famous book about Pearl Harbor. How do we separate the signals from the noise when it comes to the internet? You know, where there's there's so much out there. And without some foundation of knowledge, you're almost you're toast. You're, I mean, you're I, worse I, off by yeah. being on the internet than. Um, I'm. Uh, I guess I'm going to have to admit how old I am. <laughs> uh, when I was 21, this there was no internet. <laughs> no one at home can see this, but I'm shaking my fist at Vince. <laughs> you kids and your internet. Um, I loved the internet when it came about in my late 20s. Um, I, uh, I I still remember being a young professor, and uh, well, actually, my first one, my first account was at um, here at CSIS, where on my desk you had one of those modems that went, yeah, right. you know, and I thought, oh, this is the sound of freedom, yes. you know, this is the sound of liberation here. One of those noises that kids will never know, They'll like never a, know, like a busy right. signal in the office, <laughs> or a test pattern right. on the TV. Um, but uh, I think the problem is that younger people especially now approach it without 
having uh, any sense of how to do research. Uh, and so re it's not just like cutting them loose in a library without research skill. It's cutting them loose in a bad neighborhood full of, um, you know, um, CD bookstores. Right. Well, I mean, a library is curated, right? Right. There, a library know. is a curate. Exactly. When people say to me, well, you know, the Internet's just like a big library. No, it is not. An Internet is like a big parking lot full of flaming dumpsters <laughs> is what it is. And um, there's a lot of great stuff on the Internet, but it's only you, – you can only find, you know, as you point out, um, the difference between archival research and Internet research is you can only find what somebody has taken the time already to scan and put on the Internet. There's a human right. element to that. I think there's a bigger problem, though, with the Internet, and that is that people approach it as a, a cherry-picking exercise to begin with. So even the benefits of the Internet are negated by the fact that people don't want to use it responsibly. And I'll give you an example. When newspapers – this is another – here, so let's have some more old guy moments. <laughs> so back in the day when newspapers were made out of trees um, – well, think about expressions like the above-the-fold story. Yep. Now, for you younger listeners, an above-the-fold story was the thing on the front page in the upper right-hand quadrant of a physical newspaper. And that was a physical marker that said, this is the most important story in the newspaper. This is the headline of the day. And by the time you got to the back of the newspaper, that was, it. That was editorial. And it said, these are opinions. Mm -hmm. Because people approach even reputable newspapers, the Post, the, New York, the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, whatever it is, they don't start on page one and read their way to the editorials. They start search uh, using a search engine to pick terms they're already interested in. So they will go to the New York Times and say, um, I don't know, you know, Comey liar, right. you know, James Comey liar, or you know, Donald Trump liar. And they'll get stories that then already tell them what they know instead of sitting down and saying, all right, I'm going to read the news section first. I'm going to read some of the news analysis. I'm going to look at the bylines of who's writing what, and I'm going to make an informed judgment. Instead, I, I always say that in, approaching the Internet this way is like buying a book and then reading it by starting with the index. Right. Well, I mean, it just it, – there's so many platforms out there that will feed us whatever we want to know already. And he's all, all in the book it's about the triumph of capitalism, yeah, man. We talk in the book a lot about confirmation bias, and and I feel for people because this is something that the agencies themselves, like trained analysts, have to every day stop and say, "Let me take a step back, right. do a little metacognition, and say, am I falling into the trap of some of these these essentially not just confirmation bias, all these broader cognitive biases and." How difficult it must be for somebody that doesn't have that foundation to step back and say, okay, is is this true? Do I want it to be true? What am I looking at? And when everyone's yelling fake news at you for things that you don't agree with one way or the other. I hate that term. Well, I hate that term too. And I think what makes it really interesting is the fact that there literally is fake news out there. And I want yes. to get into this. This idea of the internet now more than ever before is a foreign policy tool mm -hmm. where – the Russians or others, we're not certainly innocent of this, have found ways to plant stories, to change stories, to do whatever. And it's not just like on RT that's so blatant that it's Putin propaganda. It's putting things out there that look like they're non-biased news sources yes. that just have little tweaks and little things here and there that, that change the way we think about the world. Um, and I, this issue of analysts being trained for confirmation bias is really important because to take yet another movie quote, uh, from Godfather 2. The problem is Americans have become Fredo. 
uh, I'm smart. I can do right. things. Not like people say. Uh, because they say, when you say, look, you really have to think about confirmation bias. You have to think about how to read something critically. They say, I can do that. Well, the, the minute you're that confident that you can do that is probably when you're not. Uh, and I think this being trained about confirmation bias, interesting story from the Cold War. My One of my first jobs in foreign affairs and security policy was that I worked for uh, private industry, but I was part of a group that was red teaming. There's an expression that mm -hmm. people should know. Uh, that I was red teaming at stuff that was being done for the strategic defense initiative. You know, our job was to sit there and say, let's take all the assumptions of the Americans and be the Soviet team and right. try to poke holes in it and to think about how we get around what they want to do. Um, and I think, you know, red teaming <clears throat> in business, in everywhere, I think that's a great idea. You should always have a group of people who just sit around and throw darts at whatever you're thinking just to get, make you a better thinker. And people, when they're alone in front of the Internet, won't do that. They're not, right. they're not, I mean, it's just human nature. We're not that capable of doing it. Um, and I, and I think on that, I, again, you have to kind of teach people, but they have to want to be taught right. about it. Yeah. So it's, it's a willingness to, you know, I, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I follow the job. I follow people who disagree with me considerably. You know what? You're a good example of this politically. We might be on the opposite ends of the universe on a lot of things. You know, I, as my listeners know, I'm pretty far left of center on certain things. You know, but if you're not paying attention to everybody across the board, you don't know when a closely held belief that was based on belief alone will be challenged to the point where you go, you know what? Let me learn a little bit more about mm. this. And I, and I, I grew up. I grew up in Miami. A lot of listeners know that. And I'm from a, I, I, from the, the Catholic Church was part of my upbringing from the very beginning. I did our, all married in the church, baptism, confirmation, all that stuff. But I was in a somewhat highly bubbled community where a lot of people would go off to school, college for the first time dealing with people who disagreed with them or didn't have the same kind of belief structure. And they would inevitably come back at Christmas break and be a wreck. Or they would gone off the deep end the other direction, and they come back, you know, addicted to all you know sorts of things because for the first time somebody challenged their beliefs, and and, and the fact that I'm not gonna let's we're not gonna be political. The fact that we don't have a political system. This might even go back into the Obama and even before that the Bush administration, where people in the administration itself are unwilling to stand up to the conventional beliefs and say. No, that's wrong. Right. We've become very tribal. Yeah. And because, again, it's narcissistic. It makes us feel better about ourselves. Politics has become a kind of self-actualization exercise where my beliefs and my, um, you know, uh, immersion in my own confirmation bias is an important part of my political identity, right? That if I can't, this is one reason I think people have a hard time dealing with experts who tell them they're wrong because they have woven their political beliefs into their beliefs about themselves as people. That if I'm wrong, I'm not who I think I am. Um, I, I've had the same experience with Twitter that, that you've had where uh, I find it fascinating that confirmation bias means that half the time I'm getting called a fascist and a right wing. <laughs> somebody yesterday called me a, uh, yesterday, a couple of days ago, called me a right-wing nut job, and then the other half of the people. There's actually an acronym for that. Yes, yeah, so I'm an R and W J. And yet, and yet, somebody else piled. In, you know, commonly, um, people pile in and say, "You're just a leftist, democratic libtard." Yes. You know, and I'm like, 
okay, you guys need to make up your mind here. Yep. And what it really means is that if you go through my thousands and thousands of tweets, you'll find something in and you'll, you'll be able to build that narrative if you really want to, but that doesn't really help you get to know what I actually think. Well, I was at a convention last year out in California that focused on politics, and I was on two panels about 15 minutes apart from one another. One was on the future of the Middle East, and one was on privacy issues. On one panel, I was the most conservative speaker, and I was the government shill on the <laughs> privacy panel. Because so I was with Jason Leopold, who's a you know he's a FOIA extraordinaire, and then people like John McAfee and others, Ted Lieu from California, a congressman. And so I was the one saying, you know, the NSA really doesn't go rogue, you know, talking about how it's it's a tool, the administration, all that stuff. And then 30 minutes later, I was the ultra left wing liberal on the Middle East panel, because I was surrounded by. KT McFarland was on it, and David Horowitz, if you know who he what? is, and I'm, yeah, and, no, and, David, yes. and so I'm, I'm being yelled at for being a, you know, you, you're a Muslim apologist, and all, and all. I can't win, you know, but, it's the same audience. And it, at the risk of, you know, the, at the risk of this sounding like a couple of old white guys sitting yeah. around talking about that we're just the smartest people, and no one gets us. Um, I think a lot of people have had this experience um, because there are more and more people caught in between the ideological extremes. And I would argue, and maybe this is where I will, um, you know, hurt myself trying to pat myself on the back or um, encourage people who agree with the approach I took in the book. I think the people who end up in the middle are the people who are willing to engage some critical reasoning, admit they're wrong on occasion admit that they need to listen to other people on occasion. And even if you don't adjust your views, uh, I think it's important to say, you know, I, I will listen to what you have to say without impugning your personal motives, which is something that happens less and less and less now. Yeah. Uh, now, I've, I've been around D.C. Um, in one form or another for over 30 years. I mean, I don't live here anymore, but I've obviously once you've once you've lived here and you've been punched into the gang, uh, you never yeah. leave. And uh, I. I feel like this started somewhere in the mid eighties. Um, you know, I feel like the Bork, I was here during the Bork business. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, the, the, uh, Supreme Court nomination that failed of Robert Bork. I should add that. Yeah, you know, for historical, I say Bork, and I expect everybody to go, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are liberals that could say, no, it started, you know, with Gingrich in 94. It's like, I think politics is probably more downstream from culture than that and that this has really become people who just are for whatever reason incapable of being told they're wrong and that's expressing itself in our politics and so we are gravitating toward people who never tell us that we're wrong right and i think as an academic exercise i've actually had my beliefs strengthened by having long drawn out conversations with somebody i disagree with who i think is brilliant I mean, my brother-in-law is a good example of this, and I'll shout out to him. He listens to this. He he is politically pretty opposite me in many respects. And some of the conversations right that wing we, nut job? No, no, <laughs> not, not not that far. I mean, he's he's pretty reasonable on a lot of things, but we we disagree. I mean, he he um, we have strongly held beliefs on opposite ends of the spectrum in many cases. And so the conversation that we've had, I certainly respect everything he has to say. But at the end of it, I'm like. You know what? I'm glad we had this conversation because I don't agree with you, but now I really understand why I believe what I believe. It kind of forced me to sit back and make sure my beliefs and my understanding was lined up the way I wanted it to be. You know, that's for years. I always hated that one person at the party 
who came up, you know, you'd be having a really interesting political argument with somebody you disagree with, but that you respect. And somebody always walks up and says, you know, you guys are never going to agree. You should just stop arguing. Right. No, no, this is, we're enjoying this. We're learning something about ourselves and about each other's views. We don't have to agree. That's not the ultimate goal of an argument. The ultimate goal of a debate is not to agree. It's enlightenment. It's better understanding of another human being. And one of the things I think, going back to the internet, going back to the death of expertise as a phenomenon, we don't go into arguments anymore to become enlightened or to learn things about other people. We go in solely to win. Mm-hmm. We simply want to, especially because we can't see people face to face. And we, we, and I'm guilty of this. Every, you know, people that have been on the wrong end of me on a bad day on the internet, and you know, I can be a real jerk. Um, but I think as a, as a rule, there are a lot of people now who, as a hobby, go onto the internet to say, this is, this is the way I deal with frustration in my life, um, where in an earlier time I would come home and kick the dog and yell at my wife, I'm going to go on the internet and I'm just going to try and burn somebody to the ground in an argument just to win. Mm-hmm. And I think the culture of winning has be, in our intellectual life has gotten completely out of control, where we view all this stuff as just an extension of team sports rather right. than learning anything. Well, I mean, the whole idea of politics as a sport has become, sadly, the kind of... And, and Although we should go say that that goal... I, you know, one of, the, one of the things that always, having been here during the Reagan years, that story about, oh, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, and they used to have... Deep down, they really loved each other. No, they didn't. Yeah. Okay? They did not get along with each other. They didn't spend a lot of time playing cards and having beers. <laughs> um, just before he left office, Tip O'Neill gave an interview in, in 87 said, Ronald Reagan is one of the stupidest presidents I've ever dealt with. I don't think he understands his job. He's a moron. Sorry, Chris Matthews. That's yeah, you know, that, that whole yeah. Chris Matthews <laughs> myth. It, well, Chris Matthews, professional myth builder. I mean, that J, you know, JFK was, you know, heroic and, bra- you know, enough already. Right. Um, but. I think there was a certain amount of respect. And I think one thing that's changed, I used to argue with people passionately with the understanding that we both want to get to the same place. We want a country that is uh, fair, that people can live a, uh, um, an enriching you know, life, that they don't have any material needs, that the country is safe and defended from its enemies. And liberals and conservatives disagree about how to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all taking different roads. The liberals are taking a different, they, you know, redistribution or less defense spending or less engagement that may provoke problems. Conservatives say, you know, peace through, through strength, the economic, uh, the capitalism is the engine. But we all wanted to see basically the same kind of society. I don't think that exists anymore. Right. Um, I, think we're, I think we're two countries now. Um, well, yeah, I, I, the, the goalpost or the, the, the end game was the same. It was just how do we get there, right. and there may be, I would say more than two. I mean, there may be multiple different ideals for where we're supposed to go, and that if you're not really arguing about the same things, it's very difficult to, to and, get us. And there. that does play into this problem of experts because experts are always the skunk at that garden party. If you think politics is about vanquishing your political enemies and that you have the magic bullet, the policy that does it. Um, you don't want some pointy head saying, uh, you know, that's not really going to work. <laughs> um, you know, you really can't uh, cut the budget in half and double entitlements on the <laughs> other end. And, uh, you know, you can't really dis- you can't really make Iran the most powerful country in the Middle East and have it work out well. Or, you know, I mean, experts are the guys that, that 
by their nature, I think, pull you back to the center simply by making you aware of the costs and risks of the things you're talking about. Let me ask you about prediction. Is sure. prediction something that, that... The one thing in the book I say we're not supposed to be doing, One right? thing in the book, we're, but, but it is something the intelligence community is asked to do nonstop. And they we call have it to. estimates. Yes. You know, but I mean, they're... There are, you know, what's China's military going to look like in 30 years or mm. even, you know, next month. Russia you know? 2020. When right. I was a younger student, you know, Ru- Russia 2010, Russia 2020, Russia 2030. Well, and this is, again, throwing darts on the wall. But I think as you to continue that analogy, it's the experts tend to be better dart throwers than the lay people. Well, do we certainly still. group our shots better yeah. even when they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Um, You know, one thing about prediction, and I say this in the book, uh, and I do talk about, I'm sure that there are some listeners who are familiar with the work of of Philip Tetlock. Um, You know, this is an interesting problem. Can experts, how good are we at prediction? Um, You know, I I always, as you just pointed out, cogently, whether we're supposed to do it or not, it's what the client demands, right? Society, nobody's really interested in a political analyst uh, uh, um, nobody's really interested in the thoughts of a political analyst who says, look, I can't really tell you what's going to happen. I'm just explaining what is. It's kind of like those commercials. I can't think of the guy who says, I'm not a dentist. I'm just a cavity identifier. Right. Right. Or I'm not a bank guard. I'm not a bank guard. I'm just a bank alerter. Yeah. Um, and so it, it does. It kind of chaps me when people say you experts get a lot of predictions wrong. Well, yes, because you lay people are constantly asking us to predict (laughs) things, even things that we tell you can't be predicted that well. Well, I mean, you know, you even write in the book, and this is the, the talking about politics, you know, Nate Silver is a great example of this where he's using statistics. He's not magically looking at a crystal ball. He gave Donald Trump a 35 chance percent chance of winning. Okay. Donald Trump won. The 35 – Silver got – and I totally understand why. He got really frustrated with this. He said, look, every three times you run this election, as we're saying, every three times you run this election, Donald Trump's going to win once. Uh, We didn't say it's impossible. We said it was less likely. And it's like people get mad at the weatherman. Right. There's a 70% chance of rain. Well, the 30% day happened, and people say, weatherman, they're morons. Well, and I think that, you know – there's real, I mean, this is a fun conversation, but there's real problems that this presents for a democracy. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, all of this we're talking about, I mean, there's already this gap of knowledge that existed anyway between lay people and experts. But the government is getting more and more complex, and national security is getting more and more complex. I mean, kind of to fight for the younger generation, things were a lot easier during the Cold War to understand the way the world worked. You had the good guys and the bad guys. You know, it was it, you had this kind of bifurcated world where you're either the zero sum, the Soviets were doing well or we were doing well. The crazy that has been created not only by the end of the Cold War but also by the you know the breakup and kind of blocks in the explosion of the Middle East has made it dramatically more difficult for people to follow along what's going on in the world. I mean, just the idea of the confusion that ISIS attacked Iran with a lot of people. Mm. Like, weren't they buddies? No, just at the very basic level, they can't be buddies. Like the, the, and, that, the, and that the inability to, to predict discrete events is not the same thing as not understanding the direction of major yeah. trends. Um, you know, 
the the stock pickers, you know, people talk about the stock market, right? Stock pickers aren't particularly good. People who just sit there and day trade and say, I'm going to try and catch the movement of this stock or that stock. Nonetheless, people who study the stock market are better at long-term trends than people who don't. Um, there is a thing, and I talk about it, there's a great book some years ago called The Wisdom of Crowds. Well, the wisdom of crowds is great if you're trying to guess how many jelly, be jelly beans are in a jar because that washes out a certain amount of right. um, you know, perceptual problem or confirmation bias. And for things like that, that can be a great thing. On the other hand, um, as even the author, and I should mention his name, James Surowiecki, um, as, as he points out, a lot of guesses are not the same thing as a lot of uninformed right. guesses that you know people – a couple of days ago, well, now it's actually a few weeks ago, I think, that this came out. There was a map in the New York Times, and it was a map of the world from about the Caspian over to the Pacific, from Siberia down to Australia. And it was covered in blue dots. It was a map that was covered in all these little blue dots. Well, every one of those dots represented a guess, the guess of an American adult right. about where North Korea is. <laughs> that, okay. That was if disheartening. You, if was... you're crowdsourcing <laughs> the location of North Korea, you're doing it wrong. Uh, because I, I, there are, my favorite part of that map were the people who knew it was on the Korean Peninsula and blew the shot at whether it was north or south. Right. And I think those people were lucky that it wasn't the whole world because I think South Florida would have been one of the locations. <laughs> yes. Somebody looks like a peninsula. I know that. <laughs> well, there are people in an earlier one, people who put Ukraine in South America. Right. I mean, it's so this this notion that somehow, well, if we all just kind of put our heads together and, you know, the experts don't really know anything because they missed one prediction. And it doesn't help um, that you have people like um, Nicholas Taleb, who really hated this book, by the way, or he hasn't read it. He read the piece based on it. He said, this is the kind of, you know, hubris well, you can't go in the other direction either of intellectual nihilism to say right. everything is unknowable. And I think a lot of people have approached the problem of expertise by saying experts don't know anything because nothing is knowable. And that is ridiculous. That is just disaster waiting to happen. Well, I think one of the biggest problems is that people, the, the average American citizen, the, the people who make up this democracy or this republic, they have no way to provide the necessary oversight of what the government is doing if they don't understand right. some of the basics. You know, I mean, you think of things like just watching the Comey testimony yesterday, which gives you an idea of when we're taping this, um, or that of others. It's complex. Yes. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot going on. But it's incredibly important for people to understand the basics. And just when you go back to the news journalism, seeing that two different – TV news stations or two different newspapers have entirely different headlines yes. and different takeaways from something we all watch the same thing. And somehow one side is saying it proves this, and the other side is proving And then the president this and morning says, I'm both, totally vindicated. And they can both right. be right. I mean, that they're, you know, depending on the headline, neither of those headlines are false. Uh, we should come back to this issue of fake news for just one second. Fake news is fake. It is a whole cloth lie created by professional spooks. You know, who sit down. I, I did a speaking tour last year in um, Central Europe where I was battling the story. And it just ha I, it's not, I was there at the invitation of the State Department, but it wasn't about this story. It was one I just happened to pick to talk to audiences about NATO moving its nuclear weapons from Turkey to Romania. Yeah. That was classic fake news. Somebody in Russia created that story, planted it on websites, Sputnik and RT, the two you know, one of the few press outlets I will never speak with. Um, they started reporting on it. They created an entire 
72 or 96 hour story, including a panic in Europe about the U.S. taking nuclear weapons and flying them around in Europe. That's fake news. Fake news is not stuff you don't happen to like or bias or spin or an error that can be retracted. And I think when it comes to those uh, kinds of stories, um, you know, like we're talking about with the newspapers with different headlines, people, nothing infuriates me more on this topic when people say, I feel like the government doesn't listen to me. Well, government, the government listens to you regularly. In fact, the government probably listens to you too much in terms of trying to disentangle your conflicting views about what you want. Well, well you, want Ob- you want socialized medicine? Here's Obamacare. Oh, you want us to repeal it? Okay, we're going to take it apart. Um, there's, but- there's nothing better than the polling which shows the, uh, the approval for Obamacare like 20 points lower than the approval for the ACA. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's just, it's, uh, and, you know, we're laughing, but it's tragic. Right. How do you feel about the Affordable Care Act? Oh, I'm in support of it. How do you feel about Obamacare? Oh, that I hate. Uh, and I think people disempower themselves by not reading a damn newspaper. My parents were not educated people. They were they were working class, factory town, you know, high school dropouts. They never missed a vote. They read the newspaper every day. They were deeply engaged. People, uh, so, I, I was given a, a talk on this in... Um, Minnesota about a month ago and somebody said well you're not talking about power this is about power and I said and I it it was a few times it really kind of got under my skin I said power is lying in the street for the average person to take if they are intelligent and informed enough to take it Um, you know when people say well you know nothing ever changes in Washington I always respond who keeps sending these same guys back ask the voters you know, when people say Congress is awful, but not my guy. Right. Well, that's yeah. Uh, and so Congress has a, like a seventeen percent approval rating, but like a ninety percent yes uh, reelection. There's something wrong with that, or you know. well, there's something wrong with the perception of people who don't understand how they can have a twelve-term congressman, but Congress is awful. Yeah. Well, your congressman is Congress, and so I, I think that one of the quotes I close out the book with toward the end is James Madison saying, you know, people must, to be their own governors, they must arm themselves with knowledge. There is nothing else that can replace that. But going back to something you said in the beginning and something that you say throughout the book that makes me somewhat afraid is that experts who need to be involved in trying to help this change have decided it's too hard. They've given up. They've given up. And, and, And that's a problematic. I mean, we see... We don't deal with that as much here at the museum because we have a self-selecting audience who walks in the door, right? There are people who want to know about the intelligence world, and the people who listen to this podcast are self-selecting. They want to know, but we try to see it as part of our mission to educate the public. But when there are people who are just saying, don't talk to me, and experts say, okay. Or they say, if you're going to talk to me, I'm going to argue with you from a position of complete ignorance and just be mad at you every time you disagree with me or try to tell me something here's the future i fear more than any you know people i think i think people who follow me on twitter think that the future i fear is mobocracy or populism right i don't i actually don't i i i really have a personal visceral dislike of populism but i also think it's not sustainable uh populism burns brightly and briefly but it's not really good at you know delivering the mail or turning the lights on what i'm more worried about and let's go back to a classic spy movie since we're where we are Uh, I think the future that is the scariest one is the last 10 minutes of three days of the condor where 
Cliff Robertson, the cynical, world-weary CIA agent, says to the idealistic Robert Redford, he says, when people start running out of fuel, when people who've never known hunger go hungry, when their houses are cold, what do you think they're going to want us to do? And Redford says, ask them. And Robertson cynically shakes his head. He says, no, no, not now, then. He says, they're just going to want us to get it for them. And I'm terrified of a future where experts and technicians and people who just know how to make stuff run will simply say, you know what? Let's not ask the public what it wants anymore. Let's just get it for them. Let's right. just make stuff happen. Let's keep it all humming. I think we're getting close to that now. I think there there are parts of modern American life and democracies in other countries. And this is, by the way, not an American phenomenon. The book is a bestseller in Canada. It's being translated into Japanese and Korean and Chinese. I mean, there, this has had an international resonance right. where I think a lot of experts have said, you know what? It's too hard to ask people what they want. Let's just do stuff and and then kind of, you know, present it afterwards for approval. I don't think that's a healthy situation, but I think it's the public's making it impossible to do anything else. But is that so let me push back a little bit because isn't that what Eisenhower's warning about in his in his farewell address? And I'm not talking about the military industrial complex because what people don't realize is that like two sentences later he talks about the scientific technological elite, mm-hmm. the people who understand stuff that no one else does when there's new world of nuclear weapons and science and jet fighters and everything else that the average American just kind of has to accept reality because they don't understand reality as much. Well, in, in his uh, famous book, The Anti, um, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, Richard Hofstetter back in the 60s, yeah. now this is like 50-odd years ago, says, look, the average person would have to admit that you know, the average voter makes his breakfast using a whole host of conveniences he does not understand. <laughs> and I think, you know, in a, in a way, that's unfair to ask, right? I don't think people should have to know how their electronically timed toaster works. Uh, but I think they should understand the basic questions in their own mind of what are my social priorities? What are my political priorities? What do I want my government to do? Uh, what things what do I think, you know, it, this is all like in every Frankenstein movie. Just you didn't think about uh, what was it? It was Jurassic Park, right? You, yeah. you thought about because you could do it. You didn't yeah, think about why right, you, you sure. should do it. Yeah. Um, and I because I, I say in the book and I, I think this is, I, I hope, a noble and optimistic uh, thing that I say in the book. We are the servants of a society, not the masters. Mm-hmm. I don't want experts to be in charge. I want our advice to be taken seriously. I want it to be heard and considered. I worked for a senator. He he asked me my views, and uh, you know, every morning my day started with a bunch of stuff from the boss saying, "What do you think about this?" But that didn't mean I always got my way. It means that an informed voice talked with a political decision maker. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, the decision makers should rule the country. But but it, I think. Eisenhower's warning is resonant because if people say, look, I don't understand this and I don't want to, and if you try to explain it to me, I'm going to yell at you. Well, okay. I guess what you're saying is you just want us to get it for you. So let me wrap this up by by going to a topic that there's a chapter in this book that as a former uh, academic at a university just made me chuckle reading the entire thing. It's going to piss a lot of people off who are in universities right now in studying. Um, And I was going to kind of – it's not – exactly intelligence related. No one's going to actually skip this, but I actually thought about it a second later and said, the people who are in college right now are future intelligence analysts and our future intelligence officers and our future military leaders. And I want to ask you, I want to, should this be something that we're worried about? I mean, are, 
is this new philosophy? And I think it is new because when I started undergrad in 94, you know, I didn't necessarily, and certainly I'm not going to age you, but when you started undergrad, I imagine it wasn't the great inflation. 1970s. Yeah. The great inflation wasn't necessarily what it is today. But, um, and even when I went to, when I went to grad school, I had a, a, use the word a ball busting PhD advisor who, um, to bring up a very lowbrow, uh, pop culture reference, the end of Billy Madison, if you've seen the Adam Sandler movie, where he, he does a, uh, a he versus Bradley Whitford in a kind of knowledge off a bowl, where at the end of one of Billy Madison's answers, the principal goes to the diatribe and says, the end of it says, all of us are dumber for yes. having listened. That was my first... God have mercy, yeah, God on, have your mercy soul. on your soul. That was my first two years of grad school where I would present an argument or idea to my PhD advisor and he'd be like, this is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen written down. Oh, I and think that's a wonderful... Oh, it yeah. made me who I am today. Yeah. And, and that, that doesn't happen all that much. Um, but these are going to be the 23, 24, 25-year-olds that are second lieutenants in the Army that are uh, junior intelligence analysts at NGA or NRO or, or NSA... Are we screwing the country over by dumbing down the academic intellectual veracity? And, and well, uh, let me let me think about that for a moment. Yes, <laughs> uh, yes, we are, and uh, I think you know there is a cautionary tale from my own field of Sovietology, where in the '60s and the '70s there were a lot of very good Kremlin experts. And I think by the 80s and uh, going into the post-Soviet period, uh, it was pretty clear that our track record wasn't good, that Sovietology really failed as a field, in part because we had academized it to the point where we were obsessed with theory and modeling and, um, you know, um, entertaining each other in the political science journals rather than getting our hands dirty and saying, what the hell's going on in the Soviet Union? Um, I, w I can remember being told in 1984 um, by a well-known professor that I won't name because I think he's still alive uh, who said the idea that the Soviet Union, now this is like you know, four years before it right. happened said the idea that the Soviet Union could collapse into its constituent republics is so absurd we're not going to discuss it in this class. And I'd asked about it because I said this this seems like it could happen. Right. You know, there's and he said pish posh you know. Um so I worry that any academic field that ends up just serving itself and exists primarily to affirm the self-esteem of the students participating in the program is a very bad idea because it does not produce people who are resilient, uh, who are flexible, who can roll with the punches when they're wrong, um, who can, uh, you know, again, we talked about metacognition, step back and look at their work and say, boy, I'm not sure if I'm buying my own argument mm -hmm. here um, that uh, that in the intelligence and military communities I, again without speaking for the Naval War College I can tell you that one of the things that we are commanded by the joint staff to teach in a military college is critical thinking dispassionate analysis to tell officers get get your ego out of the way of you know thinking through strategic alternatives and I'm not sure that, you know, this is something that American universities and American right. intellectual life in general are succeeding in doing. Well, and that's the, the big argument for continuing the liberal arts is the idea is maybe maybe an English major or a philosophy major will help you get your job at McDonald's saying, would you like fries with that? But in the best case, it actually teaches you how to think. 
One of the best pieces of advice I got, um, let me put in a Washington plug, uh, when I was a grad student at Georgetown University, um, I came in after just doing the Soviet program at Columbia. And so, of course, that's all I wanted to do, right? It's, oh, I don't care about all this airy stuff, you know, this uh, squishy philosophy and all that stuff. And um, my department chair at the time said, generalists, he said, uh, specialists will rise quickly and stop because they only know they're hedgehogs. Right, right. I talk Fox. Yeah. And Foxes, generalists, will rise and rise. He says the people that tend to be at the top of a major organization with a lot of vision tend to be people with the most broadly educated, with a good understanding of critical thinking. And he just kind of sl- he he actually took me to lunch, at the at the you know at the dining hall, and he said, "Look, I understand this is the kind of stuff you want to do, but you know we're of course I was on a fellowship, so we're here to guide you, and you know this is you're going to have to do something more." And sure enough. When I took graduate level intro to political philosophy and I got my I got slapped around a bit, I suddenly said, "Hey, maybe I'm not you know the smart kid in the room. Maybe I can learn some things here." And I think that's really important. I, I'm a huge fan of the liberal arts, and I think um, no matter what you end up majoring in, a year or two of those kinds of courses where you are challenged to think and to understand the bases of your own civilization really important. We would like to thank M8Z Choice for the continued support of SpyCast. Remember, you can try M8Z Choice for free for 30 days, and after that, you'll save 50% off your first month by visiting m8zchoice.com slash spycast and use the code spycast at checkout. He is Tom Nichols. He is the author of the new book, uh, well, newish. We've been trying to get you on for a while, so it was new when we wanted to get you for the first time, but it's a well-established, fantastic, newish book, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge, and Why It Matters. Tom, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. Really appreciate you having me here, Vince. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at INTL SpyCast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.